Sidewalk Audio and PatioBooks.com presents The Prince of Hazel and Oak, a podcast novel by John Lenahan. Book two of the Shadow Magic series. Read by the author. Chapter 10. The Athru. I didn't get a chance to talk to Mom until we were back on the road the next day. I slid Acorn up next to her and asked, What was that thing you pulled out of the wolf last night? It looked like it really spooked you. Yes, she said. It certainly freaked me up. Out, Mom. Damn, I thought I had that one right, she said with a smile. No matter. The necklace I pulled out of the wolf was an athru. An athru? Do you remember the puka that died when you were first in the feely lands? How could I forget? Do you remember the piece of gold I placed in his mouth before he died? I do. It scared the hell out of me. You put a disc in his mouth, then he changed into a wolf, howled, died, and then he changed back. Well, the disc I put in his mouth was his athru, a puka amulet. The puka wear them around their necks. It helps them change. The wire it hangs from expands and contracts so it doesn't fall off during the metamorphosis. Like banshee blade wire. Exactly, Mom said. The wolf that Spidog killed had an athru in its stomach. That wolf was a puka? No. If it had been a puka, it would have changed into a man when it died. So where did the wolf get the amulet? I can only conclude that the animal ate a puka, but that just does not make sense. Why not? The pukas are very secretive with their lore, but I know a small bit. You once told me that one of your tutors in the Hazel Lands was a puka. Well remembered, son. Yes, she was. She told me some things she probably should not have. One thing she taught me was that each athru has a marking for each creature. The athru I found on the wolf was marked Giar. It was worn by a puka that could change into a hare. So a crazy wolf accidentally wolfs down a puka rabbit. That sounds plausible to me. But it is not, Mom said, looking perturbed. The puka have almost a telepathic control over animals, and the pukas that can change into small creatures always change back when threatened. So, what's the answer? I do not know, my son. I do know that no puka has come to Castle Door since your father took the throne. And you said you were attacked by a boar in the summer. So you think there's something wrong in Pukaville? Mom gave me her quizzical look. Where do you come up with these words? The land's autumn spectacular continued throughout the day. Brendan, it turned out, was quite the equestrian. It made me regret letting him ride Cloud. Don't get me wrong, Acorn is a great horse and the best mount a man can have when the chips are down, but... Cloud is a much easier ride. 
like having power steering in a car. Our second night's camp was uneventful. I kept an eye on Brendan at dinner and followed him when he left early. As he approached my tent, I said, Um, that would be mine. Oh, he said, I, I thought this tent was for guests. Yeah, right. This is mine, and if you steal it again, I'm going to tell my mother. Oh, guess I'll find somewhere else. Sometimes it's handy having a warrior queen for a mom. Acorn got jittery when we crossed the border into the Hazellands, but it wasn't as bad as the last time. Mom rode up next to me and spoke into my horse's ear and settled him down. I think another reason why Acorn calmed down was because the Hazellands were starting to look a lot better. The first time I was here, it seemed as if the life had been sucked out of it. Now it felt as if the place was on the mend, like fresh new skin growing on a bad wound. Fallen trees had been cleared for wood, and charred branches had been cleared away. As we climbed a small hill, I remembered where we were. The top of the rise was the spot where a raft had first laid eyes on the destruction of the field, the imp garden where a raft had lost so many kinsmen. The last time he had seen the field, it had been trashed so badly that he nearly fell out of his saddle. This time he crested the hill and said, Will you look at that? It's so rare for a raft to spontaneously make any noise that it always startles me when he does. I pulled up next to him and saw what he saw. What was once a scorched and blackened patch of land had been cleared and tilled. A team of imp were planting trees and tending gardens. A raft looked on like a dog sighting a bird in a bush. Master Spidog, I called. Spidog rode next to us, taking in the wide-eyed raft in the field. Master Spidog, I said, I wonder if Prince Araf might be able to be released from his bodyguarding duties for a few hours. Araf looked at me like a boy getting permission from his mother to go swimming on a hot day. I think we can spare his stick for the rest of the afternoon, Spidog said. Master Araf, you are relieved. An ear-to-ear -ear smile erupted on the imp's face as he reached for the whistle hanging around his neck. He simultaneously kicked his mount into a gallop and blew. All of the imps in the distance immediately stopped what they were doing and then began to cheer as they saw their prince speeding towards them. We watched as a mob of imps practically dragged him from his horse. How anybody can get excited about spending an afternoon covered in dirt is beyond me, but I knew a raft was now as happy as a pig in muck. As we got closer to the outbuildings, it became obvious how much work had been done. All of the rubble had been cleared away or stacked for later repair. Several of the smaller buildings had been rebuilt, and then there was the landscaping. Those imp guys sure can plant stuff. Hedges, young trees, and flower beds were everywhere. As we approached what looked like a guardhouse, Spidog kicked his horse and sped ahead. Just before he cleared the building, he notched an arrow in his bow, and then performed a magnificent full-speed dismount. He hit the ground running, using his horse for cover, then pulled his bow to full length and let his mount go on. He stood stock-still, menacingly aiming a deadly arrow at something or someone that I couldn't see. 
I drew lawnmower and looked at Mom, but she seemed more annoyed than concerned. She kicked her horse into a canter, and I followed. Mom casually went behind Spidog. I, on the other hand, peeked around the building. Standing there, with a crossbow pointed directly at Spidog's head, was Master Dahi. Boys, Mom said in a reproachful tone. Tell this old man to drop his weapon. His clumsy reconnaissance has been exposed, Spidog said. First of all, Dahi replied, I am younger than you. In age, maybe, but not in spirit. Boys, Mom said again. This time she sounded impatient. Secondly, Dahi continued, ignoring the interruption, I have a brownie crossbow aimed at your head. I'll drop you before you can even let go of that string. Would you like to put that to the test, old man? Mom dismounted and walked between the two masters. No matter how much they wanted to kill each other, and it sure looked like they did, their duty kicked in as soon as the Queen of Doors stepped into the line of fire. They immediately lowered their weapons. Now that is better, Mom said in an overly calm tone. I'm going to return to my mount. I shall assume you two shall not raise your weapons to each other after I leave. When she got no response, she said, Master Spidog? Yes, my lady, Spidog said, replacing his arrow in his quiver. Master Dahi? Of course, Lady Deirdre, Dahi replied, removing the bolt from his crossbow. I don't know how many years those two had between them, probably thousands, but... At that moment, they sounded like eight-year-olds. Master Spidog, you are with me, Mom commanded. Master Dahi, I have royal bodyguard duties for you. He is over there, hiding behind that wall. I think you may have met. I stuck my nose around the building and waved. Connor, Dahi said as he approached and placed his hands on my shoulder. When did you get back? About a week ago. I would have thought someone would have told you. News is slow around here. I don't have an Owen slate. The leprechaun who made them was killed when Kilty blew out the East Wing. And the new ones don't work very well. I've had to rely on couriers. Tell me, how was your father? We mounted up and I told him what Mom and Fawn had done to Dad and about Mom's shadow book paperclip. He took it all in without surprise, like I was telling him the latest football scores. I guess if you're as old as Dahi and have lived all of that time with witches and oracles, it's easy to take news like this in your stride. So you'll be with us for a while, then, Dahi asked. As long as it takes. Good. I can use you. Use me for what? I said suspiciously. We passed one of the hall's outbuildings. I recognized it as the one where Lorcan had clotheslined me so long ago. Just past it, we rounded a bend, and I saw a large group of soldiers standing around a pair of dueling banta fighters in full protective gear. You finally got your security for the Hall of Knowledge, I said. Yes, Dahi replied. I imagine even your grandfather would not have minded, given the circumstances. I wanted it to be a more ecumenical group, but they're mostly imps, leprechauns, and fairies. Fairies? Of course. There are a few banshees, but 
I couldn't get any elves or brownies to join, and no one has spotted a puka in ages. This lot are all very green. I could use your help to train them. I was just about to ask what a fairy looked like when the bantistic duel captured my attention. The one guy wasn't doing very well. Every time he mounted an attack, his opponent seemed to know in advance exactly where it was going to come from. His opponent's parries and counterattacks were minimal and effective to the point of perfection. But what really caught my attention was the posture and the footwork. There was only one person that moved like that, and it made my heart race even before she took off her head protector and shook her wavy black hair over her shoulders like a model in a shampoo commercial. Essa turned, and our eyes locked. She was definitely surprised to see me, but as usual with that girl, I wasn't sure if she was happy about it or not. All eyes turned to Dahi and me as we approached. Essa's dueling partner took off his headpiece, and for a moment I was hit with deja vu. As he revealed his black hair with the tuft of white in the front, I momentarily thought it was Fergal, but then the Banshee's sharp facial lines and broad chin broke the illusion. Attention, soldiers of the Red Hand! The group snapped to attention. I smiled. Dahi held on to the same name as the army that had last occupied the Hazellands. I give you Connor, Prince of Dor. Everybody dropped to one knee and bowed their heads except I noticed Essa and her banshee-dueling partner. I dismounted. Hey, folks. Look, I'm going to be around here for a while, so you don't have to do that, okay? As you were, Dahi ordered, and everybody relaxed as a buzz went through the crowd. Essa gave a loud theatrical cough, and thankfully the hundreds of eyes left me and turned to her. If our regal visitor doesn't mind... Shall we continue with our training? Her troops straightened up and quieted down. She was more beautiful than I even remembered. What kind of idiot was I leaving a woman like that behind? She stared at me with a question on her face, and I realized she actually wanted me to answer her question. No, no, I stammered. By all means, continue. She seemed to smile at me, but only on one side of her mouth. We have been working all day on banta fighting, excellent for helping improve footwork and winning competitions, but in battle you are most likely to be attacked with a sword. What happens if you only have a banta stick to defend yourself with? I came very close to shouting out, You're screwed! But two things stopped me. One was that I had seen Essa fight sword with stick, and she was damn good at it. Secondly, I instinctively felt that undermining Essa in front of her students would be a bad idea. Our new guest, Prince Connor, Essa continued, fancies himself as quite the swordsman. Your Highness, she said with just enough sarcasm that only I heard it. Would you like to help me with this demonstration? How about we nip off and spend a little time alone, is what I really wanted to say. Instead, I said... Sure. I walked into the midst of about 100 young, eager eyes. Essa and I squared off in the center and slowly circled each other. For the first time, a proper smile crossed her face. Gods, 
She was stunning. I drew my sword and her smile vanished. She backed into the crowd and threw her banta stick to a soldier and took a training stick from another. Then she returned to the center. The prince is wielding a very good sword indeed. Does anyone recognize it? Someone shouted, It's the Sword of Dor! A murmur shot through the group. Men and women strained to get a look at the lawnmower as I held it aloft. The difficulty with fighting a sword, especially one as good as this one, is that you must not make direct contact. When wood meets steel head-on, it is usually wood that loses. Essa was holding her stick straight out in a pre-duel position, with her head turned to face her pupils. I swung the lawnmower high and sliced off about a foot from the top of her banta stick. It was like knife through butter. The crowd laughed. Essa turned, and even she had a smile on her face for the crowd, but her eyes had a look I didn't like. She inspected the stick and then threw it into the audience. The replacement sailed back immediately. Dahi stepped into the circle, holding a dulled training sword. I reluctantly swapped it for the lawnmower. Thank you, Prince Connor, for that demonstration, she said as she refaced her class. It's probably a good thing that Dahi changed my sword, because I'm pretty sure I would have done the same thing again. I think stuff like that a second time is even funnier than the first. But some people don't agree, and I know Essa is definitely one of them. A sword is obviously the stronger weapon, she continued, but it is inferior in length. You must use your superior reach to set the rhythm and tempo of the fight, directing the battle to your terms. Essa faced me directly and stood at attention, so I did too. We both bowed at the waist with our eyes locked. Our faces were inches away. I whispered, Miss me? She stood erect and assumed a fighting stance and said, On guard. I raised my sword, adjusted my footing, and asked, Is that a yes or a no? You have been listening to The Prince of Hazel and Oak, a podcast novel by John Lenahan. Music gratefully provided by Lunasa. You can hear more of their fabulous music at www.lunasa.ie. That's L-U-N-A-S-A dot I-E. You can learn more about Shadow Magic and its author on www.shadowmagic.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening. Shadow Magic, book one of this series is available from HarperCollins in paperback, EPUB, and Kindle formats.